Right, so I get to walk us through a group of parables this morning, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the spoiler. I'm going to tell you the whole point of the message right out of the gate. Ready? Everything will be exposed in the light of Christ. Everything. And if it is revealed that, that I am clinging to anything other than Christ, all is lost. And if it, I'm found to be clinging to Christ, then we will find even more abundance than we already currently receive from Christ. Okay, there you go. There's the punchline. So we're going to walk through these parables together. And, and parables are tricky business because Jesus himself says that he made parables intentionally cryptic. And he says, I talk in parables so that people won't understand, which is a really weird thing, because I don't know if you've heard it, but I hear, I've heard throughout my ministry career all the time, like, oh, we always use stories because Jesus used stories because it helps people understand. When, but Jesus actually said, I use stories because I don't want half these people to know what's going on, which Jay talked about a couple weeks ago, which is a little weird, which makes parables a tricky thing because they're kind of nebulous. And so if he, if Jesus himself does not explain exactly what the meaning is, then, then we are wise to approach them with humility rather than absolute certainty. So I'm going to do my best to do that this morning. And, um, and I'm going to, uh, so let's, let's start by reading through it. How about that? And then we'll unpack it from there. In verse 4, starting at verse 21. This is immediately after he tells the parable of the sower. It says, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest or to be revealed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of seeds on the earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus, we ask the power of the Spirit that you would explain everything and that you would give clarity where there is mystery, where you would shed light where there is dimness, God, that we ask that you would help us to understand the things that we cannot understand apart from your Spirit. Spirit, we trust that you are here because your people are here and you dwell in your people. As we read your word, give us ears to hear. Help us to listen. Help us to understand. 
and use your word to transform our hearts and, and impact our lives and the lives of the people around us as a result of it. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather in this place in your name. Amen. So, we have a few ways to look at these parables. And my plan this morning is, is to do my best to teach what is explicitly affirmed elsewhere in Scripture. So, if we get halfway through this message and, and, and Jesus rips the roof off of this joint and leans in and goes, that's not actually what I was saying there. At the very least, we can go, okay, fair enough. But it says it in like 20 other places, so we can at least rest in that, even if that's not what you were saying right here. Does that, does that seem fair? Okay, so we're, we're going to err on the side of, at the very least, we're going to be super biblically grounded while we're understanding that parables are parables, and, and we're going to approach this humbly, see if this is what Jesus is actually saying in this specific moment. So, some of the debate lies in the fact that this first little section here, lamp is brought in to be put under a basket, nothing is hidden to be made except to be made manifest, uh, and, and the measure that will be used to you, or the measure that you use will be used to you, and for the one who has, you more will be given. Each of these things, there are some uh, biblical scholars who believe because these in the other Gospels, these illustrations are used in other areas, that Mark just kind of gathered these together as bullet points and that we should, we should read them as individual and not together. That they're, they're, they're just bullet points. Um, so that's, that's one perspective. Um, and I actually struggled a little bit thinking like, oh, maybe we should like separate these and do like a week on each one and like really, really dig in. But it, but it struck me, Mark chose to bring these together for, for a reason. He is communicating all these together in one chunk for a reason. So maybe there's a reason to do that. And then, lo and behold, I discover in Luke, Luke also puts them all together, and it's not bullet pointy at all. Right? So here's how Luke says it. He says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on the stand so that those who may enter may see the light. For... As in, he's continuing the same thought, right? For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. I think that's an important distinction that that Luke includes there. So Luke is clearly recording this as, as one big statement altogether. So I think it's fair for us to say Mark must be doing the same. And so we're going to read them as one, one statement and see what it has to say. So starting from the beginning, it says, uh, oh, actually, before we get back to there, one thing I want to point out, because I think it's important as we're going through all of this, Right, right in the middle there, in fact, three times in this passage, but right in the middle there, we have Mark stopping to say, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Pay attention to what you hear. So the theme of the morning is, are you listening? Because Jesus in the middle of this stops and says, pay attention to what I am saying. Are you listening to what I am saying? So let's do our best to listen to what he is saying here. So he starts by saying, the lamp 
Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? So it's a fairly straightforward, this one's not too cryptic, right? You don't, you don't turn on a light in order to cover it. You turn on the light in order to display it so that it actually gives light, right? That one's pretty straightforward. We can all pick up on what he's putting down there. Uh, fun fact, I love fun facts. And here's a fun Greek fact, which are the most fun of facts. If you're a super nerd like me. Uh, in, in the Greek... It's a really grammatically awkward phrase here because in the Greek, what it literally says is a lamp doesn't come inside to put itself under the bed. The lamp is the one doing the verb in, in the Greek, which is weird, which is why in the English we don't translate it that way because in our context, lamps don't do stuff outside of Disney movies. We, they just, like, you have to do that to the lamp, right? So, so unless you're a tiny French butler trapped in a giant castle, you're, you're waiting for someone to come pick you up and, and move you. But it, while it doesn't change the meaning of the, ver, of, of the passage, I think it just adds an additional layer as you picture Jesus saying, a lamp, a light does not come in here to be to hide under the bed, right? Like that takes on a different meaning when you understand the light of the world is actually communicating this. It takes on a little a little bit of a first century version of Jesus given the old who's who's got two thumbs and is the light of the world. This guy. Right? So the light does not come to hide under the bed. The light comes to be on display, to shed light so that all can see, so that all can behold, so that nothing will be hidden anymore. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest or except to be revealed is what that means. Nothing is secret except to come to light. And the beauty of that is that fits in both the context of parables and in the heart. So, None of these things that are now mysterious will stay mysterious. There will be a moment when God reveals and every parable will have that, oh, why didn't I see that all along moment. When every mystery is made clear, when the light of the world shines brightly and exposes it all, every mystery is no longer a mystery and becomes clear. But it also is true in the context of our hearts and our sin because it says in Luke, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known, right? So it's the same idea. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the housetops. If that doesn't send a chill down your spine... There will be a time when all that is hidden now will be utterly and totally exposed. Either to our joy or to our horror. Everything will be exposed. Every mystery, every word, every thought, every deed, every truth, Every lie, 
all of the holiness and glory and power and love and justice of God, all exposed. Everything will be utterly and completely exposed. Are you listening? light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not and will not and cannot overcome it. It will expose all that is currently in shadow. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is already true in terms of me and God and you and your heart and your life and your mind and God. That is already true, but there will be a time when it is all laid out on the table for all to see. There is no more hiding. There is no more deception. It is all laid out. Whether it is the darkness of a lack of clarity and mystery, it will be exposed. Or whether it is the darkness of my sin and my deception and my self-righteousness, it will all be exposed. And Jesus describes this as an enormous blessing to some and judgment on others. To those who trust in Jesus, there is extraordinary unspeakable joy and release of burden when you are able to have all of your sin and failure exposed in the light and and in that find that Jesus is bigger than all of it and, and able to handle all of it and has already paid for all of it and responds to you in gracious acceptance. When the hiding is done and it's all out there, there is enormous release of burden. There is abundant joy in that. But the reality is that the fear of exposure is more powerful and painful than exposure itself. So most people will never know that or believe that because they'll spend their lives hiding and suffering from the fear of exposure rather than feeling and experiencing the full healing of all being exposed in the light of Christ. Those who rely on their good reputation hate the idea that there might be aspects of their heart and life that people might find out about and as a result, are horrified by and have a tendency to run from the light. Many of us would rather continue to keep pretending than be healed. Because at least we're comfortable, at least we're familiar anyway with our pretending, right? Being healed, that, that sounds strange and foreign and even painful. We've convinced ourselves that it's better to be sick than admit that we need help. Or we've convinced ourselves that we're not sick. We're only sick in principle, right? We're sick in, in theory, in theological principle, but not in the day-to-day -day 
gut-level, stage-four kind of way that sin has actually infected us. And we believe we don't need that help. John 3, just a couple sentences after verse 16, says, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The truth is that unwillingness to be exposed is only ever to hide our own wickedness or failure or out of fear, to continue to hide in the darkness to our own detriment. but to allow ourselves to be exposed in the light, to find warmth and healing in its rays, to clear our vision so that we can see more clearly, more accurately. That is the only place that abundant life and healing is found. One of the things that is exposed in That light is our measuring tools. It says, Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nothing is secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and the one who has not, even what he has, or the way Luke says it, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So regardless of what I say or even what I think, because my gut, my heart, my mind, whatever I want to claim is, is the source of my great ideas, is a liar, as Scripture tells us. So what I, there will be a point where what I really believe is exposed And Jesus just said, and that is what you will be measured by. Are you listening? Matthew, he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is Jesus saying this. He repeats this same warning in chapter 18 in the parable of the unforgiving servant, which if you're not familiar with that, Jesus tells a story of a man who owes an impossible amount of money, an amount of money that would take multiple lifetimes to ever earn to pay back. And the king, he owes it to the king, right? And when you are in debt to the king, that is bad news. And so the king, however, says, I forgive you of this impossible debt that you could never repay me. I forgive you. You no longer owe me that money. And that servant leaves, and as he's leaving, he sees another servant who owes him $1.50. And he grabs him by the collar and says, you pay me what you owe me right now, and, and if you don't, I will have you thrown into prison. And the king finds out about that, and his response is, you clearly do not understand what you have just been forgiven of. I'm now going to make you pay that debt back. 
Jesus gives this parable and makes this rather hard, explicit statement of my position of forgiveness or unforgiveness towards others is a reflection of my understanding of the forgiveness that I have received. If my measure is, they do not deserve my forgiveness, so I refuse to give it, then what do I expect to hear from the Heavenly Father when all is exposed and we all realize that none of us deserve His? There better be something else to appeal to rather than do I deserve it. And praise Jesus, there is. It is not based on my deserving it. It is based on His accomplishing it for us. An unwillingness to forgive means I do not understand forgiveness. An unwillingness to give mercy means I do not understand mercy. Or worse, I believe I deserve it and you don't. Which means it's no longer mercy, it's wages. Which is actually the opposite of the gospel and the anti-gospel will not save anyone. That is why Jesus is warning us of this. If you believe in something, if your understanding of mercy and forgiveness is the opposite of the gospel, then that gospel has not transformed your heart. And you would be foolish to assume it has done nothing for me and nothing in me. It has changed nothing about me. I still have a heart of stone filled with anger and unforgiveness and ungracious lack of mercy, but I'm sure I'm going to heaven. What would I be basing that assumption on if it's not the words of Jesus and it's not the work of Jesus? It says, judge not that you will not be judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if I am measuring others' righteousness using myself as the standard, and going, well, you're not doing as good as I am. You are worse than me. You're not as holy as I am. You're not as Christian as I am. Because I am the standard and you're not meeting my standard. If, I, if that is how I am measuring, then Jesus will measure me based on my righteousness using himself as the standard. Which ends very, very badly for me. Because I don't have a prayer of coming close to his standard of holiness and perfection. If, however, are you listening? If I'm measuring myself using Jesus as the standard, then I am strikingly aware of my own inability to reach that standard. I am acutely aware that I fall far short and will continue to fall far short of that standard. And then my only response is, Jesus, save me from myself. I have no chance apart from you. My only chance is to cling to you desperately day in and day out because just when I feel like I've got it a good, a good yesterday, my today falls apart again. 
I can't do this. I can't always have a heart of forgiveness. I can't always do the things that you've asked me to do. I don't feel grace towards this person. I can't do all these things that you say I have to do. And in that, I cling desperately to Jesus to say, I need you to be these for me. And when I understand that, how do you think that changes how I respond to you in the measure that I judge you by? Well, I respect you to fail at being perfect just like I do. I expect you to sin against me pretty regularly, just like I'm sinning against you. I expect you to never be able to meet the standard of perfection or being a good Christian, and that what you need to do is desperately, daily, moment to moment, cling to Jesus the same way I have to. And my posture towards you is not one of judgment and condemnation, but one of gracious mercy and love because I know your pain. I get it. It's hard, right? This is difficult. I can't do this without Jesus. I graciously, lovingly hold out to you the same Jesus that I so desperately need and as I do that, as I offer you the grace that I have received, I find that I receive more grace because to the one who has been given, more will be given. I can't out-grace God. The more I give away, the more I receive it doesn't make sense. Somehow it, 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 it goes beyond 100%. But Jesus promises that's how it works. When you're already full of grace, you'll be given even more grace. If you have none, you will find that even the things that you thought you had will be taken from you because they will not be the eternal things. They will not be the things that last In Luke chapter 6, I love, he gives this great contrast. Keep a thumb, let's flip over there if you want to keep a thumb in Mark. And then Luke is just the next book over to the right. Luke chapter 6. Man, I like, I like the sound of pages turning almost as much as I like the songs on a Sunday morning. That is a beautiful sound. So starting in verse 32, I'm going to read through this at a pretty good clip because we've got several verses here to cover. But here's what it says. Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Excuse me, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, like you and me. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. 
Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That means a lot. Will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke gives us this great contrast between these two things. When we give grace and mercy and generosity, that is what we receive back in abundance. Right? Love irrationally. Love the people that you're not supposed to love. Love the people that even other Christians say it's okay to hate. No, no, no. Love them. Give extravagantly. Show mercy freely. Forgive sacrificially. Show kindness to the evil because that is how your heavenly Father loves you. I am all of those things, but that is the way my Father loves me through Jesus. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we are His enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from Him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. We are loved by a God who loved us while we still hated his guts. Not once we have cleaned ourselves up enough, not once we have obeyed enough to earn his favor, not once we have followed enough rules for him to say, okay, I'll let you into the club. While I am still warring against him in my heart, in my deeds, in my mind, he says, nope, I'm going to love you to me. And then Jesus says, and I'm sending you out to do what I have done for you. I'm sending you out in the way that I have been sent. When we understand who God is and what he has done, only then will we understand who we really are. And the result of that is to give as he gives, which we then receive all the more. However, if we judge critically and we condemn quickly and we belittle and criticize freely when we are quick to make excuses why we don't have to give love or forgiveness or generosity to that person, then Jesus says we are right to expect more of that for ourselves. If I am counting on my own righteousness, on my own right beliefs, my own right actions to save me, then I will treat others with contempt and with criticism and with condescension because I believe I'm better than you. And then when all of my works are revealed as the filthy rags that they are, I will find that all is lost because I was counting on a pile of filthy rags to buy my way into heaven. Rather, if what we are counting on is Christ's righteousness, if I know it is only in clinging to His perfection that I've got any shot, well, then I can treat others with grace and with mercy because I have received grace and mercy. Even, even though my own works fall far short, there will only be more grace and more mercy to be found overflowing. Why? Because because of these other two parables. Because when the kingdom is planted, it grows exponentially. 
It grows beyond our power and beyond our ability, like a tiny seed that is planted. And what's my part of it? I, I, I stick it in the ground. Maybe water it a little bit. Maybe do a little tending, you know, pull a couple of weeds or whatever. But all of those things I can do, at best, all it does is prepare the soil and remove obstacles so that the seed can do what only the seed can do. I can't sit there with tiny tools and like crack open the seed and try to like extract some fruit out of it. It does, the seed does what the seed does. And Jesus says, that's how the kingdom works. That's how the kingdom works in your heart and that's how the kingdom expands in this world. It starts as something so tiny, so insignificant seeming, so mundane, just this tiny little thing, but then it grows into something extraordinary. Just like he said in the parable of the sower, just before this one, it grows, it bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold, exponential fruit that I could never produce on my own. This tiny little thing, like a mustard seed, this tiny little plant, and you plant it, it becomes this enormous, enormous plant. It's what happens when the gospel takes real root. In our heart, it grows fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of sanctification or the process of becoming more and more holy or looking more and more like Jesus, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. We can't really explain it. We can't control it. It is the work of of the Spirit of God in a regenerate and reborn heart. Just like the kingdom itself that birthed from something so, so teeny, one man with a few followers in a backwards country that nobody cared about, has reshaped humanity and eternity. when we have an absence of those things, when, when we see none of those fruit in our lives and it reveals that our heart has not truly been transformed or that we have fallen asleep in gospel amnesia. That's the way Peter describes it. He says, if, if you see none of this in your heart, it's because you've forgotten that you were already cleansed from your former sins. You've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten what it's done to you and for you. And so as a result, you've, you've stagnated the work that it is doing through you. And Jesus himself warns those of us who find ourselves there to remember and to repent and to return to our first love. To not, to not settle with excuses like, it's just who I am. People don't change. Well, if I believe that, then that means I don't believe the gospel. Because that is the gospel, that he takes dead people and makes them alive, that he takes hearts of stone and transforms them into hearts of flesh, that, that people are reborn, that the old is gone and the new has come. So the gospel, believing the gospel is believing 
that you are or can become a radically new person in Christ. For those of us who are struggling, maybe with discouragement or defeat, and you hear Jesus' words and you think, oh great, I can never do that. I can never be that. I can never forgive enough to earn the forgiveness that I need. I can never give enough grace to put enough credit in my account to be able to draw from the grace that I would require. And if that's what you're thinking in your heart right now, praise Jesus, you are in good company. You are in company with every person who has ever been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you will never believe that Jesus is everything until you believe that apart from him you can do nothing. Getting to that point of realizing, but I can never do that, is Jesus' whole point. He says, precisely, that's why I have to do it for you. Will you surrender to me and trust me to do what you were incapable of doing on your own? And then when we do, when that seed gets planted, then what grows is all of these things that we're incapable of doing on our own. What flows out of a heart that is overwhelmed with the gratitude of forgiveness is forgiveness. What grows and pours out of a heart that is radically transformed by grace and acutely aware that they can never be perfect and they need God's grace is grace for others who also cannot be perfect and need God's grace. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is not the result of works. This is not your own doing. We have nothing to boast about. Those of us who are resting in that have nothing to boast about other than Christ. There is a, an eternity of difference between believing that you must work in order to earn God's favor versus obeying God in the joy and the confidence that comes from knowing that you've already been given His favor as a gift of grace through Jesus. The seemingly insignificant seed, so small, just surrender. When planted and watered and tended, grows in ways that we could never control or expect. Are you listening, church? Pay attention to what you hear. May the measure that we use be the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf so that we may find grace and mercy extravagantly always and so that we may give grace and mercy extravagantly to everyone always. 
Jesus, please help us to do what we cannot do apart from you. Help us even to believe what we cannot believe unless, Spirit, you awaken our hearts to see it as the aroma of life. Shine your light, Jesus, on our hearts and expose what has been hidden in the warming and healing light of your grace through your gospel. Jesus, please help us to understand what that means. Help us to embrace the reality that that apart from you we can do nothing, but in you there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Please, Spirit, awaken hearts that are asleep. Please, Jesus, turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And for those who may even in this room right now be spiritually dead, breathe life through your Spirit by the power of Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death and resurrection on our behalf. Jesus, you are sufficient for all things in all ways. It's you that we celebrate. It's in your name that we pray.